So now this follows, for those who, who uh, haven't been here in previous weeks, Saul was on his way to Damascus. We know the scripture says not simply on his way to Damascus, but he was still breathing murderous threats is the language there. He had hatred and destruction on his heart. He had every intent. We remember he was imprisoning people, but not just imprisoning. It was his desire that prison simply be a step. He wanted them not, he wanted the name of Christ to be destroyed and all who named that name to die. That was his commitment. And as he was going to Damascus, that clear and earnest and evil desire, what happened? He met Jesus. Jesus met him on that road and in a sense shined a degree of his glory. And in that display, he was sent to the ground, wasn't he? And, and the effect of that display of his glory and then the revelation of who he is, Saul was utterly changed. He even, we, the scripture tells us that he ended up being blinded following that for three days and couldn't eat and couldn't drink. In a sense, almost a picture to tell him, there's a spiritual sense in which this is what you were, blind and could not see the truth, could not see the glory of God. The word of God was being given and displayed over and over again, but you did not feast, understand and take it in as you could and should. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of God. He knows very shortly here. All that he had been taking in, he had been understanding it according to tradition and not in the light of he who is the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. And in an instant, everything about his worldview, everything about his faith, everything was utterly transformed when he met Jesus and we recognize we don't meet Jesus in exactly the same visible manner that he did and yet the scriptures speak to us that there is a spiritual sense in which through the preached or proclaimed gospel we see we lay hold of, we perceive the glory of God in the face of Christ in the gospel. So we don't meet him in a voice from heaven on, the, on, on, the, well, on horseback. But nonetheless, it is very similar. God is pleased through the gospel by the spirit to reveal his son to us. And when he does, we realize this. We were blind, but now we. We were lost, but now found. We were dead, but now alive in Christ. We are made new. And everything is now changed. Much of what had maybe been a mystery. And many have testified in their own experience. I grew up in the church and I read the Bible, but it didn't really make much sense to me. It was kind of boring. Well, things like that. Realize the boringness is gone. Now there, there is no more exciting, no more thrilling, no more energizing piece of literature in the world than the word of God. Because all the others are merely pieces of literature, letters on pages, where this is a living word, powerful and active. Doesn't simply give us insight. By the spirit it gives us life. And continues a work of renewing our mind. It is an implanted word. It is an active word. It is a transforming word. And it brings us into the life and union of Christ and his spirit. It is special. And so though, though there is a difference in the outward horses traveling seeing the spiritual experience that we have is identical to that of Paul 
And when we now by grace see that Christ is the Son of God, that there is salvation in no other, in Him alone is forgiveness of sin. When we now see that, we stop fighting that. We stop resisting His will. We stop speaking against those. Now we love it. Now we delight in it. And what's amazing, or, uh, you know, when you read verse 19, it says this, and taking food, this is after Ananias came to him and he's baptized, taking food, he was strengthened. And for some days, he was with the disciples in Damascus. The first thing we see here is, all right, what was in his heart for these people? Destroy, they, they must die. That was in his mind. They must be done. And now what is it? There's, there's, there's delight and enjoyment and devotion and participation. So those that he had come to destroy and to try to separate them from all of humanity and separate them from their very bodies, he now what? He joins with them. He fellowships with them. He participates with them. He who, who came as an enemy now joins them as a companion. How did that happen? We say well, that's the grace of God. You know, it, the, these, that's what we, I wish that we would grasp it stronger and stronger as the days of our life unfold. This is not a decision a man can make. This isn't just, this isn't uh, that he had a midlife crisis, particularly as he's likely still in his late 20s, early 30s, a little early for the midlife crisis. Uh, none of those kinds of things are going on. What has happened is that God changes our hearts. He removes that heart of stone that is unresponsive to him, his word, his will, and his people, and he puts in a heart of flesh that is one that is tender and responsive and now what we love him we love his word we love those who are his and this completely changed and it it must have been and I, and, and it's interesting to note this this rarely happens in a way that is secretive Often, the grace of God so powerfully transforms us that it's manifest. And it had to be powerfully visible in his life because you, you have to, uh, in your own mind, think about how potentially fearful, doubtful, and timid these disciples in Damascus might be. We know that, and we'll see next week, that's how they were kind of feeling in Jerusalem when he came back. Uh... We know this guy, he hates us, but he's joining with them, he's with them, he's participating, and it's not unique to him. I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 16, verse 3, it's, he says this, as for the saints who are in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Those that he now longs to spend time with desires to develop relationship with, deepen in, in camaraderie and friendship with, it's now changed. These people he wanted nothing to do with, now he desires them to be his bosom buddies, close friends and companions. Romans uh, shares some of the, the sense of that that Paul shares in his own experience towards believers. He says this in Romans 1, 11 and 12. He says, I long this was his heart. He longed to see the saints. And I hope and pray that God can stir this up and does in each one of us. Because some circumstances and some occasions. Oh, I got to go to church today. You know, I got to see this person and see that person. That's not how it should be. God help us that those kind of things are not there. It should be, ah, I get to see my brothers and sisters. It should be uh, with, with greater sensations and stirring in our hearts than people feel at times when they're getting together for family events. 
Now, again, I recognize some family events, people don't have a longing for those things, depending on. But sometimes you do, particularly if you haven't seen your cousin that you were close to in a long time or or parents haven't seen children or or grandparents, grandchildren in a while. There's a longing and anticipation. That's the same kind of thing we ought to have for one another and for our gatherings to one another. to where it's missed out. It's like, oh, no. Oh, no. I don't want to miss because then I might not see these dear people again till the next week. And I get such joy in seeing them and meeting with them and encouraging them and being encouraged. Uh, as opposed to the notion that we gather together as an audience for a day. No, we gather together as a body to walk together. To encourage one another. I long for you that I may impart some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, verse 12, that we may be mutually encouraged by one another's faith. That's what happens if we're doing this right. To one, on one level, we are being instructed, right? The, the lessons are being given in the Sunday school from the word of God. The, the, the word is being preached right here at this moment in this time. And we are being instructed and built up in the most holy faith. That is good and that is Sadly, there are some that's all they come for. Come, listen, and get out. Think, wait a second. The scriptures speak of something more than that. You know, and it's a blessing to say that here because it's 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 not tisk tisk tisk. It's not we. You know, God has brought in this in this little gathering of saints a, a, a sense of family, so that it's easy. But we want to make sure to maintain that and not become complacent in it. We come together that we may be mutually encouraged. It should be in our heart and mind. How can I serve the Lord in the lives of my brothers and sisters today? I'm not coming just to get, and nor should we ever think, I, unless I'm specifically in a microphone or specifically in a teaching position, then uh, um, I have no role today in the church. This is wrong! <laughs> we have a role in every simple conversation that we have with one another when we engage in, in the real questions and I, and I believe that in this body it happens to an extent when we ask about how someone's recovering from a knee surgery or how this mat prayer matter is going or whatever it may be it's not merely to pass time well I better ask so he doesn't feel bad that's not the nature of it, it, it that happens in some people from time to time but it is more what? So I might pray for him, pray, hear how the progress is coming concerning the things that we are praying for. Find out if there's a setback, find out that we're involved in one another's lives. That's the what we're called to be connected, not disconnected. The nature of connection offers it in, in the terms of the body of which Christ is the head. But for the most part, if all is right, every part of my body is connected. Correct. I didn't leave a finger in the fellowship hall. All the pieces are joined together, and that's how it ought to be, participating, engaged, mutually. Look what he says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 4. Paul writes, and he says this, I remember your tears. I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Isn't that great? I mean, in meeting one another, in engaging one another, it ought to stir up a little something where there's joy uh, because we share each other's lives, because we're looking forward to hearing a good report of answered prayer or, or to hear where there are struggles and needs and come alongside one another. We weep with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We bear one another's burden. We do life together. We do church together that's how it is but again you live in a culture where that kind of falls off and part of that is because we do live in the age and era of mega churches you know uh mega churches and anonymous attenders you know where it's just such a massive thing that you can come sit down and leave 
and you cannot show up for three weeks and then come again, nobody knows that you missed for three weeks. Nobody knows that you, you know, that, that you had surgery. Nobody knows that you got sick. No, nobody knows a thing. And every, you know, it, it's, it's disjointed, disconnected, disembodied. It is not the way it's supposed to be. You can see the love and longing in Ro uh, Romans 15, 32. He says this, uh, to the church, so that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed by your company. I mean, you start to hear these things filled with joy, refreshed by your company, mutually encourage one another. There's supposed to be something going on when we get together. And so what I want to encourage you and, and is let us not forget that. To some degree, we need to be intentional about that. And remember, this is part of my, I'm, I'm you right now as I say this. This is part of my ministry to love the saints, to encourage them. And, and some may say, well, um, I don't know. I get there. I don't feel encouraged. I don't feel I don't feel joy and refreshed by others. All right, that really wasn't what I was pushing for. What I was pushing for is you to strive to be a joy <laughs> and you to strive to be a refreshment to others. And what you'll find is as you do that, it begins to go round and round. It begins to flow organically and powerfully and naturally like a living thing, not like a chain list thing i'm not i'm not saying you know uh, that you got to make a list of certain individuals and i got to make sure that i i, I do this and, and i'm going to script out the questions i'm going to ask it doesn't have to be uh, that you know tight and that narrow loving how you doing simple questions open up engaging i just this life of the disciples and how he's immediately with them and not only immediately with them what's what's shocking about this passage if you get all the way down um, to where he's verse 25 where he's being led out it says this but his disciples took him by night and let him down wait a second how did that happen now, and again, wait a second. So now he's the Lord and he has disciples? No, he's a teacher. He had been one who was wonderfully and thoroughly taught by Gamaliel. And so he immediately begins using his gifts in the context of the body for their benefit. And so he went to one who was destroy the disciples to now one who's discipling. <laughs> That's amazing, isn't it? Because he's just plugging in. Uh, instead of breaking down, he's now building up an absolute change in what happened. And I urge you and, and to think about and pray about when God brings you together, whether here or somewhere else, it's not merely to attend, to sit and listen. It's to be a part of a flock, biblical language, or part of a family that we share together, we live together. And when we're doing it right, it will involve joy. It will involve refreshing. Now, will there from time to time be irritation? You betcha. <laughs> because why? We're still sinners. We're still people. We still make mistakes. We still get tired. We still, we still uh, respond rudely and rashly. And that's going to happen. But what do we do? In love, bearing one another. Forgiving one another. Love covers a multitude of sins. But if there ain't no love, then all of a sudden is a mess. But see, if, if, if these, and, and you think, well, how did the, these guys so quickly forgive and accept Saul? People who were their brothers and sisters in Christ had greatly suffered at the hands of this man. Some might say it wasn't right for them to forgive him so quickly. It wasn't right for them to accept him because, I mean, what about all that he did? Yeah, all that he did, who's the judge? God. And if God forgave him, then what are we doing holding it back? No, you've got to make amends. Prove yourself for this period of time. No. This is, you declare yourself in Christ. You align yourself. You commit. We forgive you. 
We love you. Let's walk together. Let's join together. If a brother or sister stumbles in sin, we go to them and say, you can't keep going that way. When they turn from their sin, what do we tell them? Stay away from your sin for six weeks and then I'll love you again. No! We tell them, come on. Stay walk together that I'll hold you up when it comes. This is something of that life. First Thessalonians concerning brotherly this is you have need for anyone to write you. I always love when the scriptures say that. You have no need for anyone to write you. But what's he And not to mention, I'm about, about to mention, you know, weird is the English language. But I write to you concerning this thing. Uh, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Indeed, you're doing this to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. You're doing it. You're doing a great job. And so what does he then say? Oh, he's not done. But we urge you, brothers, to do so more. All the more, more and more. So not every time, and, and I'm thankful for this, nobody can say, what are you doing? What are you seeing? Why are you preaching the sermon? Well, I'm preaching through the book of Acts. And so the subject matter that comes up is the subject matter that we come across in the book. It's not that I'm trying to point fingers at any individual and say you do wrong. Even indeed, I think in our context, we're doing pretty good. But I urge you. Do it more and more. Well, I also like the, the phrasing there, do it more and more. Because at what point do you say, I'm doing enough. I've poured, you know, I'm helping the church. I'm giving it. It's enough. At what point? Don't. Yeah. When you are done, when you finish the race, run the course, and nothing is left. Until then. Go ahead, more and more. Because one of the things will happen is sometimes we'll feel like we're at the end of it. I can't give. Well, where we struggle to obey the commandment to give more and more, what we'll find is what? Grace upon grace that meets us to fit us for that. All right, let's move on to the second thought in here. And that is uh, from sort of delight, devotion with the disciples to declaring Christ. Oh, listen to what it says in verse 20. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, he is the son of God. Now, this is quite something. I mean, because one thing that he was against more than anything in his life and what's remarkable is this. He was upset that they were declaring Jesus to be the Messiah, to be the Christ, which, which even in the Jewish mindset, they didn't fully understand and expect the Messiah to be the eternal Son of God become man. They didn't understand any of that amazing truth, did they? No. Uh, the mystery of the triune God being didn't say all but what God has now revealed to, uh, to Paul, or what is still here called Saul, but we're more familiar with him as Paul. What he's revealed to him here is, Jesus is not only the Messiah, the, the promised leader of the kingdom the people are waiting for. He's the son of God. Amen? When you look this i want you uh, want you to see his language um he immediately began saying he's the son of god now someone might say this hold on um how come he is teaching so soon what training does he have and the answer is this a whole lot more than anybody else <laughs> he's actually spent most of his life to this point as sort of a valedictorian of the word of God. 
in terms of the Old Testament. And now that Christ has appeared to him and, and has opened his mind by the Holy Spirit that he's received to see the Son of God, to see the Christ. Remember, we've already seen earlier in the Gospels as Philip went and beginning this scripture. He spoke Christ to him, where we see Christ in Genesis, Christ in Isaiah, Christ in Christ. And you begin to see, oh my, all of these passages are perfectly pointing forward to Christ. Now he sees it and he begins to teach. Oh, I, I would encourage this. Now, you may not be ready upon salvation. But, but if you've heard the God, which is the power of God and salvation, you have to have heard the gospel to be saved. Then here's what you know thus far. The gospel. So go ahead and start with that. There's a big part with grab that who by the grace of God have had the privilege of studying theology and the privilege of studying apologetics and studying a host of other things and tell hey, start with the gospel. Get to the gospel as soon as possible. The, the priority is not to teach creationism. The priority, you know, is not, is not to teach all of these different facets and factors. Uh, all of these different discussions can be fun. But the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. You know? So, so, so why are we digging a hole over there? When you preach the gospel here, and when the grace of God lays hold of them, and also are granted by the Spirit of God, truth of then they understand what? Well, when the Bible says God created the heaven and earth, now it resonates in their heart. Now they get it. The reason they couldn't before is because they didn't believe in God. They knew nothing of his being. They knew nothing of his power. It remained a mystery. But when God was revealed, the righteousness of God, the power of God, the person of God, in the gospel of Christ, suddenly all of the pieces work. And what's confusing to me is we, we try to prove to them the existence of a deity, the nature of design, and we try to prove all of those things, uh, which often fail, if you've ever experienced it or seen it, or they, even if you get someone to acknowledge, okay, well, maybe there is a God, but there are so many religions, how can we know which is the real God? Well, because of Jesus Christ. <laughs> because he was. The son of God. And actually when we take that up. It's interesting to note this. He came to the synagogue saying. He is the son of God. Now back when I was. Uh, in seminary. And having a missions course. We had a visitor come to that missions course. And he began to teach about. How he and a group of people. Were doing a translation. Of the New Testament. For Muslim people. And he said, see, one of the things that, that offends them is to call Jesus the Son of God. Because in their mind, if you say Jesus is the Son of God, then that means he somehow uh, cohabitated with a woman and, and had an offspring. And so that would make God impure. And so you offend them when you say that. So we're, we're rewriting the New Testament so that it that never refers to Jesus as the Son of God. So are you kidding? You realize that in this context, you tell a Jew that Jesus is the Son of God. Was that offensive? The moment Jesus was declared to be the Son of God, they said, are you the Son of God? They asked him and he said, you say that I am. Which more literally, if we understand the language, is I am as you say that I am. Yes, I am the Son of God. What did they say? What more testimony than we need? He makes himself out to be equal with God. Let's kill him. That was, that was the Jews' notion. So uh, the goal is never, the goal can't be to soft pedal in a way that would be non offensive. I mean, the, the gospel is a stumbling block and a rock of offense. That's what we're told very clearly 
over and over again. It says it in Corinthians. It says it in Hebrews. It says it in Peter. Because this is the way. But what else does it say? It's a stumbling block. It's a rock of offense. It's foolishness. But to those who are called, it is the power of God. And the wisdom of God. And so we don't change it to make it easier. And, and, and in the purposes of God, this is important. When the angel came and met with Mary, what did he say? He said this, and I'll help you remember. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born to you will be called holy, the son of God. I mean, if that's the message de declared by angels, if that's the message declared by the spirit, are we going to be ashamed of that message? No, because that's the only message that saves. I love the word also of John the Baptist now coming further towards the ministry of Christ. I have seen and have borne witness, John 1, 24, that this is the son of God. The devil comes to him to tempt him. And the devil said to him, what? If you are the son of God. This isn't a secondary thing. This isn't a secretive thing. This is central to the pronouncement of his person. He's the son of God. Command this stone to become to bread. Become bread. When the garrison demoniac filled with legion cried out to him. What did he say? What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. When uh, uh, we're also reminded of this, at his baptism, God spoke from heaven and said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Again, at the transfiguration, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The angels declared he's the son of God. John the Baptist declared he's the son of God. He himself acknowledges that he is the son of God. Demons fear as they stand in the presence of the son of God. The devil tries to the one he declares him to be the son of God. So significant. And one, some of the reasons why it is so significant is because in, in declaring him to be the son of God, it brings him to the absolute center and preeminence and fulfillment of much that was spoken of in the Old Testament. For the children of Israel, David was the king, right? The throne of David. There's going to be a Messiah who will come and sit on the throne of David. And we come to realize some of those prophecies spoken to David. That were in part fulfilled to Solomon his son. In a fuller fashion are fulfilled in Christ. It says this in 1st Corinthians. I'm mean, 1st Chronicles 17 verse 13 and following. God says to David. I will be a father to him. Now it's important. We, we look at ourselves and we say we're all sons of God, right? Children of God. Now. But for an individual also to be referred to, that spoke of something. wasn't something that's the same for everybody so why are you even saying it no it's it's unique and special and it says i will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me and i will not take my steadfast from love, love from him as i took it from him who is before you but i will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever and his throne will be established forever now, I want to ask you this. Did David sit on the throne forever? No, he was buried. Solomon, did he sit on the throne forever? No. And though for an extended season they kept trying to fill 
a descendant onto the throne, eventually the whole kingdom is overrun and they're ruled by foreigners and no longer even themselves. So they did not forever unbreakably rule David or Solomon. But then there's one who comes and sits on the throne of David. My house, my kingdom, every temple that was built, whether it was the temple of Solomon, destroyed, whether, whether it was the temple that was the second temple that was uh, rebuilt uh, during the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, that was destroyed. The one rebuilt again by Herod the Great, that was destroyed in 70 AD. So the house wasn't forever, was it? Well, not the house as an earthly temple, not the throne as an earthly throne, but Christ. In him will be the house. In him will be the throne. And it will be forever. And in accordance with all these words, verse 15, uh, Nathan spoke. Remember, um, it says this in Hebrews uh, 1, 5, and 6. To which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or, again, I will be a father to him, and he will be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, let all the angels of God worship him. So we're seeing what? This one who comes and sits on the throne and is named the son of God. It's not just son of God in name only. Let all of the angels of God We remember the words of Thomas. And furthermore, in the prophet Hosea, well, first of all, to Pharaoh in, in uh, Exodus 4, verse 22, he says this, You shall the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. So who's the firstborn son? There was a son. Israel was the firstborn son. But then as we come to the New Testament, Hebrews, which I just read, says what? There's a greater sense in which Jesus is is the firstborn. And this is a little bit of a mystery to us, but I'm going to help you out a little bit more. Hosea says this, speaking of Israel and seemingly accounting of their history. When Israel was a child, it says in Hosea, I loved him out of Egypt. And what does it remind us of? Made them a nation. Delivered them out out of Egypt. I called my son. God's talking about the nation of Israel, right? Yes, and more. Because what does it say in Matthew chapter 2, verse 15? Remember, God appeared to Joseph in a dream, told him, Get out, they're coming for you, go to Egypt. And remain there, verse 15, Matthew 2, 15, until the death of Herod. And the scripture says, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I call my son. Wait a second. Every Hebrew scholar was convinced that was a historic statement about Israel and now we come to know yes it was that but more than that it was a prophetic statement about the true eternal Israel of God the David of God the son of God and so that's why the the scriptures get a little bit mysterious and confusing when we try to when we try to Hold off Christ till we get to the New Testament. That's a mess. <laughs> because all of that is pointing us to and directing us to Christ. And also the sad thing is, once Christ is revealed, when we still want to cling to those, those little pointers that were pointing to Him, release those things that pointed to Him, and rejoice in Him, the Son who has come. 
son who was given. Than the son of God. I just in terms of his de- his declaration there, he did. You know, I don't want you to get confused. He he went there and proclaimed him to be the son of God. This this was not his message. Jesus is the son of God. The end. That's that's not all he was doing. He was. The scripture says he was proving him to be the son of God, which means he was doing a lot of the things I was just doing for you. He's going back and going. And you say, you, who's the firstborn? And they say, Israel. They say, Jesus. Oh, who's the, who's the one that was called out of Egypt? Israel. Jesus. What? Who's the greatest king of Israel? David. Jesus. What? <laughs> and in all of it, he is God, very God, the Son. And their minds are blown. But it's more than just that. In Acts 26, when talking about this, it says, but Acts 26, 20. It says, he declared first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of, of Judea, and the Gentiles also, that they should repent and turn to God and perform deeds in keeping with their repentance. So he didn't tell them only, he is the Son of God. He told them, because he is the son of God, this is what it means. You turn from all this nonsense. You turn from all of your hopes and dreams. You turn from all of this worldliness. You turn from all of these false gods. You repent and you follow him. And you do deeds consistent with it. It's not only he is the son of God. But because he is the son of God. If you are his, you will now do differently. It's not only, it, it ends up being only the, by the grace of God, who he is, but once we are united to him by faith, what we become in him. He's the firstborn. He's the one who deserves alone the inheritance, right? And yet we become heirs and joint heirs with Christ. How is that? He's the one alone who is fit as the true son of God, but we, by union with him, have the spirit and can cry out, Abba, Father, and we receive the adoption. So that we are also sons of God. What wonderful privileges. So we see all of that. Now the scripture goes on through, through this to tell us. Um, so he demonstrated these things. Acts 9.22 says this. Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus. By proving that Jesus was the Christ. I just love that language there, don't you? He... He proved it. He would reveal the scripture and show how Christ. Now, when, when we say proved, that doesn't necessarily mean people were convinced, sadly. But he proved it. He showed, this is what the scriptures say. This is what Christ has done. This is what it say. This is what he's done. The scriptures proved true. God has proved true. His promise is true. true. It's all there. But we also know what happened shortly after this. The Jews decided, all right, we can't prove him wrong. You know, we can't use the scriptures to prove him wrong because the scriptures just seem to be on his side. Or so good at it, we. Is ultimately leading up to preparing for point. And so they decided. If we can't defeat him in argument, here's what we got to do. Kill him. Because then we don't lose any more arguments. Then we don't lose any more debates. We, we just got to be. Now, what, what's a sad thing is this, and our heart should say this, but if he could from the scriptures... And from even his own experience, prove to them. Why would they want to kill him? Why wouldn't they say, thank you. Thank you that I now know. But that's the condition of the heart. As well. I basically say in two ways. He by faithful teaching. And he demonstrated it by a full turning, didn't he? Because it, it goes on in this passage to say those who were there were 
all amazed. Is this not the one who did this in Jerusalem? Is this not the one who came here to arrest us? Is this not the one? He could prove it from the word. He could prove it from his changed life. Brothers and sisters, may we be those who prove it both ways. It is not right when we speak of it with our life or our words, but then our life is contrary to it. Now, we won't be perfect. We, we, there's none of us that will be perfect in this life. Not a one of you. But by the grace of God, we should be, be becoming more and more like Christ. And because Christ is at the right hand of the Father making intercession, we have this confidence. I have failed in this way today. Remind us, if we confess our sin... I always loved that passage growing up because I remembered this. It, it's not that I am faithful and just. I'm trying to be faithful, but I stumble. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just. And, and we are cleansed of all unrighteousness. I think, ah, oh, it's not even that a little of it remains or a little of it is held because my acceptance with God rests on his unfaithfulness and his grace is powerful and it is at work changing me and transforming me. I'm getting there, but I'm not yet there. He who had wreaked havoc in Jerusalem and done the same. Now, in all of that, I just want to note one more thing. Coming down to the very end, go look at me in verse 23 to 25, where we see that he departed. Many days passed and the Jews plotted to kill him. We know also actually from uh, what will be told us in, in uh, 2 Corinthians that they had even cooperated with the local lesser king and leaders so that, so that everybody was hunting him down, ready to kill him. And what does it say? But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. Those that claim the name, now he himself has a death warrant against him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Just want to say this. Sometimes, now, it doesn't comment one way or the other. But I will say this. When he first came to Damascus, he came didn't he? I've got this. I've got these letters. I've got to destroy. Now, much he's quite humbled. Now, in the course of time, God has graced his boldness, and to some degree, it seems like he's like it or not. He struggled with boldness. He asked the saints to pray for me that I may have boldness to declare as I ought. When it came to Jerusalem, they were telling him not to go, and he says, "You know, I know that this is what God has for me to go there." But not every single time are we as believers supposed to run into the fire. We're not supposed to run into the shooting range. It's not necessarily what's required. We can, we can wise, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Sometimes we can avoid the danger and avoid the conflict. It can be quite humbling. It was, see, because what was he going to serve? It wasn't that... What was their goal? To kill him, not to converse with him. Why did they want to kill him? He had already told them all of the things. He had already shared the gospel. So he should have been bolder to get the gospel to those who wanted to kill him. They already had. And now they want to kill him. I can appreciate someone who will be bold and endure hardship and even the pot a potential fatality to take the gospel somewhere. Wonderful. But once the gospel has been delivered, the response to the people is hatred and death. A humble retreat is acceptable. <laughs> right? And you leave the seed that you've planted and you let it go. And, and I like this because you know what? He, you, you recognize he's not just some crazed, bold zealot. Who takes that boldness from one to the other. But now, now that zealousness still remains there. But instead of sort of a, a haughty, condemning, condescending zealousness. Now it's quite humble. 
And it, I, I like the fact that it says his disciples took him. So he was, had in a sense become their teacher, right? But then he, they took him. So whose advice was it to, to retreat? Hey, don't give me advice. I'm the teacher. What's the matter with you? No, that's not what he's doing. He's loving, interacting, sharing. I mean, that, it's a dynamic. With regard to the word of God. So he teaches the word of God in a regular capacity. But we all have life experiences. We all have encouragement, something to share, some way we can participate and come alongside each other and be a, be a benefit. Give some wise counsel. I've been in this circumstance before. I've been through this event before. And we come along. We encourage. We produce joy. And that kind of has taken us all the way back to where we started today, isn't it? With the disciples, in delight, in joy, in refreshing, in encouragement. So four things we saw today. Uh, a delight and devotion with the disciples. From a, from a desire for their death to now a delight in them and devotion to them. That's wonderful. That's the grace of God. Secondly, we see he was declaring Jesus. <laughs> from wanting to destroy the name, now he's declaring the name in its fullness son of god true israel risen returning repent all of the wonderful depth of that message he demonstrated the things that he declared means proved it from the scripture proved it from with faithful teaching and proved it with full turning his words his life matched up and lastly he departed he who was a mercenary is now a missionary. And as he goes out from there, he's going to go to Arabia. And actually, he's not done. He goes to Arabia. And you know where he comes back for ministry after he has a season in Arabia where, where God even further teaches him, equipping him for his new covenant apostolic ministry. First thing he does, he comes back to Damascus. Equips those saints even further before heading over to Jerusalem. What a great God. Let's pray. Lord, we are always amazed at your word. Amazed at the privilege of the Son of God that we declare. We're so thankful also that we realize it's not just a, a message or a story that we declare. But it is the truth. It is a truth that, that causes your people by your spirit to turn. That continues its work in transforming us. Lord, we thank you that it causes us to repent. And then gives us a life of repentance. Lord, a life that is grounded and rooted in Christ. Where he is our greatest hope. And he as our head is our identity. And we find ourselves not only united to him. But intimately connected to the members of the body. Devoted to those who also are his disciples. Lord we pray that you would bless in the context of this fellowship. That we would have delight in one another. Joy in one another. Encouragement in one another. Refreshing from one another. God may your spirit powerfully and mightily abundantly work among us. And may we go out. With that gospel, may we continue, even as was done here, proclaiming Christ with boldness and joy to be the Son of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.